All right, Psalm 46. We're going to try and cover five tonight. How's that sound? (laughs) Hey, there's a reason for it. I'm not just trying to push through. There's a reason for it. I've, I've been discovering in our study through the Psalms that there are, as we've talked about already, groupings. There's a reason why certain Psalms are placed together where they're placed. And so as we go through this, I want you to see this. Sometimes we need to see the whole ark, uh, even as we go through verse by verse. So we're going to go through verse by verse. Stick with me. Buckle up. But I think tonight will be very valuable to each of you to see all the way through where we're headed, where we're going. Let's, uh, let's bow together one more time and uh, lift up the, the study to the Father. Lord, it is such a, a privilege to come to You in prayer and to talk to You. Lord, to bring our lives, our hearts, whatever is going on in our, in our days, to bring it before You and just lay it out. It's a pleasure, Father, because inadvertently what we discover is we are in relationship with You, just talking with, with our God, conversing with You, Jesus. And so there's, there's a great sense of... Uh, peace here, Father, in in just praying. And tonight, Lord, we we open ourselves to You. We open up our hearts. And we just say, Spirit of the living Christ, breathe truth into us. And speak, Father, I pray, to each individual here as You see fit. We will all be in the same place in Your Word, but we're all in different places in our lives. And You know exactly what needs to be heard. And so I pray, Father, you would open our ears to hear you and speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, we started what uh, you could call a progression toward heaven. A progression toward heaven. Psalm 42 through 45, we saw, we looked at, as as we considered those four psalms, yeah, four psalms, we saw a picture of the end times. Interestingly, you know, it's not something that God came up with after the fact. The reality is that this whole thing we call the end times, these last days that we're in, but also the culmination of all things and how it's going to play out, all of this, God planned from the very beginning. So it's not an afterthought with Him, and it shouldn't surprise us to see, to hear Him teaching about these things, even in the Psalms, even in the Hebrew Scriptures. God intended this from the beginning. It should be coming out in bits and pieces as He reveals it to us and to His people over time. So we saw last week how the Bible says it's all going to go down. Beginning in Psalm 42, we saw that godly remnant of Israel thirsting for God in the time of tribulation. Though it was a reality that David is thirsting for God, David portrays for us, he's a wonderful picture of those in Israel who will call out to God in time of trouble, in time of need. And the Bible teaches the worst time of need that the people of Israel will ever have, past, present, or future, is that time of Jacob's trouble, the tribulation. Psalm 42 began to portray that for us. Psalm 43 and 44, Israel continues to cry out for deliverance from tribulation, from a great tribulation. But marvelously, suddenly in Psalm 45, we're at a wedding. A wedding feast. And it's very clearly 
the wedding of Messiah the King and His bride. Look at Psalm 45 again. Just drift back there for a moment. Verse 6. Speaking to the king, the psalmist writes, and possibly Hezekiah here, speaking to the king, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you, God, with the oil of joy above your fellows. He says, all your garments are fragrant and with myrrh and aloes and cassia out of ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made you glad. The psalm is directed to God, the king. To God, the Messiah king, whose God made him glad. It's speaking about Jesus Christ. If you go down to verse 13, it says, The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is interwoven with gold, and she will be led to the king in embroidered work. This is speaking of the bride. And again, we went into that in depth last week. But watch this. The virgins, her companions who follow her, will be brought to you. And they will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. They will enter in to the king's palace. So I see in this, and I don't think it's a stretch, the wedding feast of Messiah the King to his bride. And Revelation 19 talks about the marriage feast of the Lamb, where Messiah the King, Jesus, is wedded, in a manner of speaking, to his bride, to the church. You know, I get excited about this. I hope you do too. Does it thrill you to hear about what's coming? I mean, to consider heaven... And in light of the things that we face in our daily lives, the drudgery of it, or or perhaps the tragedy of it, the difficulty of of what we have to face in this life, just to talk about heaven. I just love it. And it's, it's great because as we speak of heaven, I see smiles begin to erupt on people's faces. And I see eyes lighten up. You know, we can be talking about this manner of Christian living and that manner of Christian living, and then you just have to say the word heaven and people go, Oh, yeah, I want that. I love that. Even the birds get excited about it. (laughs) Flapping overhead. (laughs) But you might wonder, and I've been asked this a few times, more than a few times actually in the last few years, why all the emphasis on the last days, Pastor Rick? Why are you always talking about heaven? And it seems there are probably three things that we come back to again and again and again in the Scriptures. Heaven, the last days, where we're going. We come back to Jesus probably more than anything else. And that's intentional. We talk about Israel quite a bit. But why heaven? Why so much? Well, C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. That's good. Keith Green, several years ago, said, you know, if it took Jesus seven days to create the earth and he's taken 2,000 years to work on heaven... Man, we're living in a garbage can compared to what's going on up there. Heaven. Paul said in Philippians 3 verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And in verse 20 of that same passage he says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also wait eagerly for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was looking to heaven, talking about heaven. It's one of the primary things that concerned Paul in his ministry. Heaven, heaven, heaven. So I agree with C.S. Lewis, and I agree with Keith Green, and I agree with the Apostle Paul, who, by the way, I believe all three are in heaven tonight, even as we talk about the heaven that they longed for. I want, like them, 
I want to be heavenly minded. I want my thoughts to linger on heaven. In a world that is so earthly minded, my aim, our aim, is heaven. It's being where Jesus is. And by the way, if your aim is heaven, it's God's aim for you as well. That's where He wants you to be. Now as we get going, there's a question that I left unaddressed last week in in Psalm 45 that I'd like to begin with. And it centers in there on verse 14, that she will be led to the king in embroidered work, and the virgins, her companions who follow her, will be brought to you. And the question is, who are the virgins? If Messiah the king is the king being talked about in Psalm 45, which I think is clear, and if the bride is, as the rest of scriptures indicate, the church, who are these virgins? Who follow after, who are led there into the palace, who are led up to the king alongside the bride. Matthew 25, the first 13 verses, gives an instructive parable. Jesus talks about the parable of the ten virgins. Ten virgins. You may remember the parable, ten bridesmaids, virgins, waiting a long time for the groom to arrive. They gather together and they begin to get drowsy and they fall asleep and suddenly... The groom's here. It's time to go in. Time for the wedding feast. The word is out. All ten virgins have a lamp. The Bible tells us the word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. All ten virgins have, well, no that's not true. Half of the virgins have extra oil. The other half don't have enough. And the Bible tells us that throughout Scripture, the Holy Spirit is portrayed by that picture of oil. The lamp, which is a word, and oil, indicating the Holy Spirit. And so, half the virgins have oil. All the virgins have a lamp, but half the virgins' lamps go out, and now they have no oil. Suddenly, the bridegroom appears. He calls those who are ready to come, and those with the lamp, the word, and the oil of the Spirit, those who have both are ready to go, entering into the wedding feast. Those who don't have extra oil don't have the Spirit. Their lamps go out. They're not ready. They don't enter the celebration. In fact, to them, the door is shut. Now, that parable is often used for those who aren't ready when Jesus comes. People say, oh, it's the church. And it's those who are ready in the church and those who are not ready in the church. It's not talking about the church because the church is the bride, not the bridesmaids. So who might it be talking about? I believe it's the same people being talked about in Psalm 45, the same virgins, the same bridesmaids there in verse 14. Who might that be? Well, let me ask you this. There are ten virgins. Who are the people of the Ten Commandments? Who were the Ten Commandments given to? It's Israel. It's Israel. Now, there are other clues in Scripture. Israel was first given the word as a lamp. First to Israel. Isaiah 8.20 Isaiah said, if they, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. One of the primary reasons God called Israel to be His people was He wanted a people to keep His word. And they have. Thank Israel, by the way. Well, praise God, really. But thank God that He made a people who were so serious about keeping His words. And that we still have the word intact. And that when, many of you Bible students know this, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered and the scroll of Isaiah almost in its entirety was rolled out and and put together and looked at, that the wording from there was exactly the same. With a few minor spelling differences as it is today. 
Because God had His people keep the Word. They were given the lamp. But the problem is the lamp only goes so far without the Spirit. And when the Spirit goes out, the lamp becomes dry. Like the Dead Sea Scrolls, it begins to crack and be difficult even to read. Difficult to understand. Peter said in 2 Peter 1.19, We have the prophetic word more sure, to which you would do well to pay attention, as a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Some in Israel will have not only the lamp, but they will have the necessary oil. They will receive the Spirit. God said, I'm going to put my Spirit on them. And so some will have lamp and oil. And at the right time, having believed in Jesus, having received His Spirit, they will enter in to the palace of the King, as it were, into His kingdom. They will be ready when He comes to begin His kingdom. Some will not. Those without the necessary oil to light the lamp. I believe the virgins, both in Jesus' parable and in Psalm 45, are the godly remnant of Israel we talked about last week, who will be invited into the millennial kingdom with great celebration. I think that's who we're talking about here. By the way, just to take it a step further, Revelation chapter 7, verses 4 through 8 describes them. 144,000 Jewish believers. Verse 4 of Revelation 7 says, I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed, from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So if you've ever wondered who the 144,000 are, they're not the Jehovah's Witnesses. They're not some other cult or sect. No, they're sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Absolutely clear. As the scripture says, there are 144,000 sealed Jewish people. And by the way, to be sealed means they have the Holy Spirit. You ever thought about that? That's what to be sealed means. You're sealed if you're in Christ and you have the Spirit of God. We receive the Holy Spirit as a seal, as a pledge of our salvation. And so the 144,000 sealed are people who have the Spirit. They're the people of Israel. Lamp, light, they have the Spirit, the oil. And they will enter into that great celebration. And by the way, just one more step further. Revelation 14, verse 4, speaking of these remnant the remnant of Israel, these are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they go, they have kept themselves chaste. What does that mean? They're virgins. Virgins, Psalm 45. Virgins, Jesus' parable. Not the bride, but the bridesmaids, who once they come to realization, with the lamp and with the oil, enter into the kingdom. And that's what we're going to look at a little bit more tonight. We go beyond the tribulation and into that great millennial kingdom. Now, it's so important to get this order down, and I keep getting asked this question over and over by people. Now, when does the rapture happen? And, and is, the, is that the kingdom comes and then judgment is... And there's a confusion there, and there need not be. Because the book of Revelation chronologically and clearly and biblically lays it out for us that all you have to do is just read it through, keep it in order, don't jumble it up, and it's all there to understand. Let me give it to you. Here's how it's going to be if, if we take the Bible literally. Now, if you want to take it allegorically, you make it say whatever and have your own little cultish thing. But if you just take it the way it's written, here's what's coming. The next thing on God's prophetic calendar. And by the way, I, okay, I got a side note on this. Are you keeping your eye on Israel right now? Have you heard? 
John Bolton, the former US, UN ambassador, just came out the other day saying Israel has eight days to destroy the reactor in Iran. If they don't, they will lose the chance. Why? Well, because Russia has already dispatched nuclear fuel that is en route right now. Once it gets to Iran, once it gets into the reactor and the reactor is up and running, if Israel tries to take it out after that fact, it will cause massive radiation to civilian populations, which is a violation of international law. If Israel is going to do it, they have to do it in the next three to five days. So watch. Now they may not. They may choose to let it go. But it's fascinating to me to see the connection between Russia and Iran, which, by the way, Russia and Persia historically have never, never functioned together. And yet here they are. Turkey has been pro-Israel for a long time until this whole flotilla incident, and now Turkey is turning quite anti-Israel. Turkey, which, well, I'm getting way ahead of myself, but I was talking with Ben Shook yesterday, and Ben said, are we living in Ezekiel 37 or what? (laughs) There is stuff happening all around us, but the next thing that needs nothing to happen before it, the next thing on the prophetic calendar, is the rapture of the church. Nothing has to happen biblically before that happens. And that excites me. But here's the order of things. Revelation, it starts out in Revelation chapter 1. And Jesus is revealed, glorified to John. And he says, John, I want you to write some things down. The things that you've seen, the things that were, which he has now seen Jesus glorified. The things which are, which are your current present day, John. And the things which will be after these things. So here's the layout. Revelation 1, Jesus glorified. That's already happened. Revelation 2, the church age. Actually, Revelation 2 and 3. It's all letters to the churches, the seven churches. And those seven churches, man, I'm just going to get so far off and we're going to be here four hours. Okay, those seven churches represent seven churches across church history as well as they were seven actual churches. And if, you're, if I lose you in any of this, go listen to the Revelation study. We go very slowly across nine months of teaching to lay it all out. It's, on, it's online. Revelation 2 and 3 are the church age. That is the things which are. That's where we are right now. Toward the end of chapter 3, I would say. The very tail end. Because the very next thing to happen, Revelation 4 and 5, the church is caught up, raptured, and is in heaven. And it's a fascinating study to look at that. John is is caught up, a door is open in heaven, and there's a voice like a trumpet. And John goes up, and suddenly he's there in the throne room, and he's seeing all that's happening. And I believe John is a picture for us of what will happen to us. So Revelation 4 and 5, the rapture of the church and the church there in heaven. And immediately, beginning in Revelation chapter 6, Antichrist rides in. A covenant is signed. The tribulation begins. And the church is not present. In fact, if you look in the book of Revelation, the church is mentioned, another, I think, about 14 times in, the first, in chapters 2 and 3. You get to chapter 4 and 5, the church is in heaven. From 6 on, you don't hear the church again until chapter 19 when Jesus comes back. Not a single mention of the church. Even in chapter 13, which says, let him who has an ear, let him hear. That's all it says. Well, in the first two chapters, it always says what the Spirit is saying to the churches. In Revelation 13, it just says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. The churches aren't there. So you have the rapture of the church. 4 and 5, the church in heaven. Revelation 6, Antichrist comes in. The tribulation begins. Revelation 7, the godly remnant of Israel. That 144,000 is sealed and protected. 
Revelation 8 through 19, on through the rest, is the tribulation, actually the great tribulation, talked about throughout there, the last three and a half years of, of the current age. Revelation 19. So you've got rapture, okay, tribulation. At the end of that, Revelation 19, the glorious return of Jesus Christ. He comes back with His saints, with the bride. We return with Him to conquer the rebellion, although we won't. I was asked the other day, so we're going to be involved in a great battle? No, we're pretty much going to watch it. Because by the time we sat down, Jesus will have been finished. You know, it's over. <laughs> he takes care of it. We just go, yeah, it's our team. You know, like most of us do when we watch sports. Guys, you didn't do anything to get the touchdown. Your jumping around your living room did not help. You know, but we go, yeah, we won. We were great. We were awesome today. All right. We? No, they were awesome. You were lazy. Anyway, <laughs> Jesus comes back. We come with Him. Revelation 20, He establishes His kingdom, a thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. A millennial reign. And, and it's very specific. Six times in Revelation 20, it says a thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years. And people say, well, why? Why not just take us on up to heaven? Because God made a promise to David. And I'm going to give you a kingdom. I am going to have one of your descendants sit on the throne in Jerusalem and rule and reign over this earth. He made a promise and God doesn't break a promise. And that millennial kingdom will largely be God's fulfillment of His promise to the people of Israel. And we come back with Jesus. We rule and reign with Him during that thousand years while the remnant of Israel come into the millennial kingdom. And life continues on. And we're going to talk more about that tonight because... Picking it up, Psalm 46 begins to describe wonderfully, prophetically, the millennial kingdom. Psalm 46. Now, we read Psalm 46, didn't we, on Sunday? We studied through it. We talked about it. And scholars believe Hezekiah wrote 46, 47, and 48, those three psalms, all as psalms of deliverance, a a trilogy of deliverance. And they were immediate to his day, but they're so prophetic in their scope. Watch this. Look at Psalm 46, verse 4. We won't do the whole thing, but pick up a couple of things here. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised His voice and the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. He says, come, behold the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. It's prophetic, gang. This is far bigger than what happened in Hezekiah's day. In Hezekiah's day, war did not cease to the ends of the earth, but it does in that millennial kingdom, that time of perfect peace under the righteous reign of Jesus Christ. Micah the prophet put it this way, Micah chapter 4 verse 3, they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they train for war. Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. So, verse 10 of Psalm 46, so cease striving. See, striving, know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. 
And so Psalm 46 starts this picture. It opens up this, the early days of the wonderful messianic reign when Jesus comes, destroys the rebellion, puts it down, begins the millennial kingdom and says, no more war. That's rule number one for the kingdom age. No more war. And Psalm 47 now describes the joyful worship of His people in the millennium. Psalm 47, verse 1. Oh, clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with the voice of joy. For the Lord Most High is to be feared, a great King over all the earth. He subdues people under us and nations under our feet. He chooses our inheritance for us, the glory of Jacob, whom He loves. Hezekiah is writing, and Hezekiah knows the joy of deliverance. Historically, what Hezekiah saw happen was absolutely astounding. Mighty Assyria fell apart following their attempted siege of Jerusalem. 185,000 Assyrian soldiers fell. They woke up dead, as we talked about on Sunday. And immediately after that, the great Sennacherib was killed by the sword of his sons. The king of Assyria, mighty great Assyria. Mighty Assyria went the way of all the ungodly nations of the earth. In fact, Assyria went the way of every nation that's ever tried to take down Israel. And it's interesting that Assyria was great all the way until they surrounded Jerusalem. Until they tried to destroy Judah. And then they fell apart. Sennacherib died, his sons followed, there was bloodshed there and and accusations and there was an intrigue and meanwhile mighty Babylon was growing and would take Assyria's place and after Assyria's attempted attack of Judah Assyria would no longer be the great nation that it once was. Nations who go head to head with Israel always ultimately suffer for it. Nations who cast off Israel as unimportant always go down afterward. Great Britain is one of the most recent examples. A great nation, a glorious imperial nation spread out across the earth until they began to undermine promises and break covenants with Israel. Great Britain lost its power in the world. And you can track every nation that ever went head to head with Israel and ultimately they fall often right after they try to take out Israel itself. And so Hezekiah describes that, but he describes a time even greater, when all the nations of the earth, not just Assyria, all the nations of the earth are subdued. And Israel is better off, better in fact than in the glory days of David and Solomon, when Messiah the king now comes to reign. And it's with this mindset, by the way, that that a man by the name of Isaac Watts wrote the following song, you probably know it, Joy to the World. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world. The Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ while fields and floods and rocks, hills and plains repeat the sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of His righteousness and wonders of His love. It is not a Christmas song. It is a kingdom song. That's what Isaac Watts wrote it for. It wasn't the coming of Jesus as a baby when He was born. It was the coming of Jesus as Messiah, the King. 
And the whole earth would be under His rule and His reign. So if we're still here this Christmas, sing it that way. As a kingdom song. Verse 5, Psalm 47 continues on. It says, God has ascended with a shout. The Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a skillful psalm. And the word skillful there is masculine. Interesting. Why does he command that we sing praises with a masculine psalm? A skillful, a teaching psalm. We'll talk about that on Sunday. God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. The princes of the people have assembled themselves as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. It's just a wonderful psalm. And there's great instruction right in here in these few verses on worship. And, And I do want to save that for Sunday. We're going to talk about great instruction for praise here. We'll spend some time there. But for tonight, just notice the wording in verse 5. Verse 5. Here in this time of the millennium when praise will be a constant, it says, God has ascended with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Does that sound familiar? God ascends with a shout, with the sound of a trumpet. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says, The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. But wait, Rick. Psalm 47, verse 5 says God has ascended with a shout and a trumpet. First Thessalonians 4 says God descended, or Jesus comes down with a shout and a trumpet. Well, yeah. To go down, you've got to first be up. Right? Or, or to go up, you have to have already gone down. I, I learned this when we moved into our new home several years back now. First time in my life, we were in a daylight basement home. Where upstairs was downstairs and downstairs was upstairs. See, I always lived in a house where the downstairs was where the kitchen and the living room and the den. It was all kind of in the downstairs area. And the bedrooms were all upstairs. And we moved into a daylight basement where the kitchen and, and the living room and the den, all that, that's, that's upstairs. Our bedroom's upstairs, but all the kids' bedrooms are downstairs. And nice as it, as it is to have them further away from us, it, it confused me. I would go downstairs and Cheryl would say, Rick, I need to talk to you. And I'd say, okay, I'll be down in a minute. I, I mean up. See, I had, I had to go, once I had gone down, I had to go up to be where she was and I mean, it's a very simple concept. I hope you're getting it with me here. When you go up the stairs, you're going to have to come down the stairs. And when you're downstairs, you've got to go up, okay? So if you understand that, then maybe you'll understand that Jesus knows the way between heaven and earth. Jesus, who has descended, also knows how to ascend. And He's shown us both. In fact, there are a number of times we can point to in Hebrew history where Jesus Himself apparently visited earth. We've talked about these Christophanies, Old Testament appearances of Jesus. He visited Abraham. He visited Abraham in the person of Melchizedek. And that's an interesting study in and of itself. Genesis 14 and, and Hebrews chapter 7. Compare those two and ask yourself, is this Melchizedek, is this really just Jesus? Perhaps. Jesus said, Abraham 
longed to see my day and he saw it. He saw me, Jesus said, and the Pharisees went, <laughs> what? You weren't even born when Abraham, how can you say it? And Jesus said, well, before Abraham was, I am. What? So Abraham saw Jesus. Uh, Jesus apparently appeared to Jacob in that wrestling match through the night. He appears to Joshua as the captain of the Lord's host. He appears to Gideon as the messenger of the Lord. He's there, I believe, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace. Nebuchadnezzar looks in there and the three guys are walking around and they go, there's a fourth guy in there. How many did we throw in? And Jesus is in the furnace with the boys. We know that Jesus descended in human flesh at His birth. And we know He ascended again after his 40 days after His resurrection, ascended back up to heaven. Jesus knows the route. And he doesn't need a GPS. He knows where He's going. He's got it down. And Paul says in Ephesians 4.10, He who descended is Himself also He who ascended far above all the heavens so that He might fill all things. Listen, at the rapture, when the church is caught up, Jesus will descend again. But not to earth. He only comes as far as the clouds. We meet Him there. You know, I don't know if He's going to have a lot of things going on in heaven that day, so He can't come all the way down, but we meet Him. You know, he calls us up, and there we go. But in the Millennial Kingdom, and the Bible is absolutely clear about this, Jesus will have descended all the way to earth. Long before His first coming, the Bible details His second coming. Micah chapter 1 verse 3 says, Behold, the Lord is coming forth from His place. He will come down and tread the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under Him. Wait a minute. They'll melt under Him. Didn't Hezekiah write that? Yeah, back in chapter 46 verse 6. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised His voice. The earth melted. And so now Micah is saying the same thing. The earth will will melt under him and the valleys will be split like wax before the fire, like water poured down a steep place. And Zechariah confirms that same thing. Oh yeah, he's going to set foot on the Mount of Olives. And the mountain will split down its middle. Zechariah also said in Zechariah 6.12, it is he, speaking of Messiah, the branch, who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne, and thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices, that is the office of priest and king. Biblically, you could be a prophet and a king, or you could be a priest and a prophet, but you could not be priest and king. It was kind of against God's law, because there's only one prophet and priest and king, and that's Jesus. And so He will rule. He will descend to the earth in that time of the Millennial Kingdom. However, if we're looking at verse 5 here and and we're reading chapter 48 or Psalm 48 correctly, we're already in the Millennial Kingdom and suddenly God ascends with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. So what ascension is indicated here in verse 5? And I think J. Vernon McGee has it right. He supposes, and I agree, that this may indicate one of the many stated times that Jesus will ascend to and descend from heaven during the Millennial Kingdom. Checking in with His Father. Up and down He goes. And as He goes up, the world sees Him and says, Praise the Lord, there goes Jesus. He's awesome. Glory to His name. 
And He will display that visible glory before the world as He rises, He ascends, and He descends. And of course, verse 8 says, God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. And it's speaking of Messiah King in that time of the Millennial Kingdom. Now, Psalm 48 has us right there in the beautiful capital of the Kingdom. Great is the Lord, verse 1, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, His holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north. The city of the great king. Now if you've been to Israel, you know that in the far north, it's not Mount Zion, it's Mount Hermon in the far north. So what's this talking about here? Jerusalem is a city built on many ridges, several ridges. It's over 2,500 feet above sea level, and so when they say beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth, this is a city that is high up. It's an elevated city. And it has several ridges on which it's built. And Mount Zion is one of those ridges. Mount Moriah is another. The Mount of Olives a third. And on these great mountainous ridges, the city was originally built. But Mount Zion has a broad context to it. You've heard the word Zionism. You know, when, when uh, Mahmoud uh, Aminah-Jihad says, you know, Zionists, those evil, wicked Zionists, you know, when he says these things, he makes Zionism sound like a bad thing. And in fact, in the world, people will kind of spit when they say Zionist. But Zionist is just someone who loves Zion. Who wants to be in Zion. Because Zion speaks of the whole land. And Zion speaks of all of Jerusalem proper. Zion can also refer directly to the Temple Mount itself. But Rick, I thought the Temple Mount was on Mount Moriah. It is. But Bible students catch this. You need to understand the topography of Jerusalem, especially in Hezekiah's day, as he wrote, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north. Jerusalem in the days of the kings was surrounded by three steep ravines or valleys. Those valleys are still there, but there's so much building, it's kind of hard to see them. The Kedron Valley is easy to see, but the Hinnom Valley, not quite as easy to see, uh, the valley of uh, the Tyropian Valley, kind of hard to see. I mean, you, can, you can see them if you look, but they're not as pronounced as they were. They were deep ravines in Hezekiah's day. And what was great about that, the Kidron in the east, the Hinnom in the west, and the Tyropian in the south, these three valleys formed a, a, a great barrier, kind of a U-shaped fortress to the east, to the south, and to the west. And Jerusalem, the city, was built up there, beautiful in the north. Beautiful as Mount Zion in the north. The the city there to the north. But this is what's interesting. This focus on Zion in the north. Invading armies would have found it very difficult to invade from the west or the east or the south. Because you've got to fight uphill. And meanwhile, you know, the people in Jerusalem could be chucking all kinds of things, shooting arrows, throwing spears, whatever. And you're trying an uphill battle. It's almost impossible. It's impregnable on that side, on the south, west, and east side of Jerusalem. So armies always invaded on the north side. And that's where God said, I want to build my city and my temple. He, he didn't say, I want to build on the north a great citadel with military barracks or an outpost there. No, He says, put my temple there to the north of the three valleys. Well, God 
If we build a temple there, that's the place of attack. That's where armies would, that's where I want my temple, he says. Put it to the north. Why? Why there, Lord? Verse 3 of Psalm 48, God in her palaces has made himself known as a stronghold. I'm the stronghold, Israel. I'm all the protection you will ever need. You put me in harm's way. You put me there in the north. I am the stronghold. You know, the world says church is impractical. Spending an hour, two hours on a Wednesday night at church? I mean, don't you have better things to do or to watch? You know? It's impractical. It's a waste of time, worship. It's a waste of time. God says, well, I'm your deliverer, if you'll have me. I am your stronghold. Plant my throne in the place of your vulnerability. And there is such spiritual application there for us. In the place of our vulnerability, we plant His throne. That is where our greatest trust is. And by the way, Jesus died on the north side. Even north there of the Temple Mount itself. To the north was where Jesus died in the most vulnerable place of the city. The cross was set up on Skull Hill. But Jesus also arose on the north side. In that place of vulnerability was where Jesus brought victory. And God always does. In the places where we are vulnerable, God wants to put His temple. Will you let Him? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are a temple of God? And that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. And so we've got to learn in our lives to protect this temple. I'm talking about our bodies, gang. And what we do to our bodies, and how we treat our bodies. And our bodies are the most vulnerable place. It's where the sex happens. It's where drinking and drugs happen. It's where stupid decisions are made and then acted out. God says, man, put my temple there. He doesn't say, your spirit is the temple. He doesn't say, your soul is the temple. No, He says, your body is my temple. Treat it as such. I am, I'm just astounded today. I've got to tell you. I'm astounded at how, especially younger Christians are, no offense you guys, but how they're living life as if they can have one foot in faith and one foot in the world. I go to church every Sunday, I worship God while I'm living with my girlfriend. What? You're dishonoring the temple of the Lord. Don't do that. Give the temple its preeminence in your life. I'm worshiping God on Sunday with a slight headache because of all the drinking I did Saturday night. What? What are you thinking? And it's tragic to me. And it, well, again, getting ahead of myself. But there are things that people are making choices about. And it's not just younger people. I, you know, I'm, I'm seeing people in their 50s and 60s doing things to their bodies. And I'm thinking, why? Why even take the risk? Why mess with this? Let the body be the temple of the Lord. Now Hezekiah, he describes the beauty of Jerusalem in his day, but he concurrently points to the wonder of Jerusalem in Messiah's coming day. Watch this, verse 4. For lo, the kings assembled themselves and they passed by together. And they saw it. They were amazed. They were terrified. They fled in alarm. 
What were they so amazed by? They saw the temple. The kings in Hezekiah's day, they would, they would look at the temple. Other nations were astounded by the temple that they saw. Historians of ancient times literally wrote that the Jewish temple was the greatest wonder of the, of the ancient world. Did you know that? You're not going to hear that in you know, educational classes in our schools. But the Jewish temple was considered to be the greatest wonder of the ancient world over the Parthenon. It was highlighted over the pyramids of Egypt. The Jewish temple. Many of you have seen pictures, if not the Temple Mount itself and the Dome of the Rock mosque there. You know the Jewish temple was three times higher, taller than the Dome of the Rock? And it was overlaid with pure gold. Solomon's temple. And Josephus wrote that it was so stunning, especially at sunset, when the sun hit the temple, that in far off lands, a hundred miles away, you could see the glow of the Jewish temple. And kings would walk by there. And they would see it. They were amazed. It says they were terrified and they fled in alarm. They ran from it. It freaked them out. It says panic seized them there. Anguish as of a woman in childbirth. And with the east wind, you break the ships of Tarshish, as we have seen, so we have, as we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish her forever. Jerusalem, Israel. Israel's God was respected and feared for the most part among the surrounding nations. Not worshipped, but feared. That's why they wanted to take the temple out. It's why Babylon wanted the temple destroyed, because it freaked them out. Because they knew what happened to Assyria. Because they knew what had happened to Egypt before them, to the Philistines, to the Moabites, to all the ites who tried to cause trouble for Israel. The word was out. Those people have a God that is bigger than they are. And that temple there, that's got to be the key. See, the fleshly mindset immediately goes to the physical structure. And they thought, if we could destroy the temple... Well, then we can destroy the people as well. And so the Jewish temple was, was feared there. Where has that fear gone? You know, today in the world in which we live, where has the fear of the Lord and what He can do, where has it gone? Humanity has a very short memory. And as I told you earlier, Ben's question, are we living in Ezekiel 37 or what? Go read it about Gog and Magog. And the list there is very specific. Russia, Turkey, Iran, which is Persia. Other nations gathering together to go against Israel. And wouldn't you think they'd read their history books? What happens when you attack this people? It's not good for you. It's not a good thing. But humanity has a short memory, no longer fearing the God of Israel. You know... There's a truth here, and I hope you all get this. That the further we drift from the stories and the glories of the past things that God has done, the further we will drift from the truth. The more focus and energy we put on on things today, on our experience, even spiritually today, as opposed to remembering and recalling and restating the glorious things God has done, which we see in His Word and which we're doing tonight, the further we drift from the truth. It's why we have the Word made more sure. A lamp to our feet, a light to our path. It's why He's given us the oil, His Spirit, 
So that we might know the things that He's done and accomplished and praise Him for those things He's done. Praise Him for the things He's doing. Praise Him for the things He's about to do. But when we step away from that and we forget the things that He's done and we kind of turn off the Word of God because we're so turned on to experiential Christianity, we start to forget who has the glory. We go on with verse 9. We have thought on your loving kindness, O God, in the midst of your temple. As is your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. And what is the source, at least in Hezekiah's day, of this gladness? The source of the gladness. Now remember, as far as Hezekiah is concerned, he's writing about Jerusalem's immediate deliverance from Assyria. We can read this and see the beauty of the elevation of Jerusalem in the Messianic kingdom, in the Millennial kingdom. But Hezekiah is writing about an immediate experience, and, and he says in it, he says, Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Praise God. What is he praising for? Well, think about this. What do people of besieged cities, what do they do when the battle's over and the victory's won? Well, what would you do? You'd make damage assessment, wouldn't you? Don't you go check out and make sure things are okay and things are still standing and where do we need to send the emergency vehicles and where do we need to give the help? Once the battles were over, you go on an inspection tour. Watch this, verse 12. Walk about Zion and go around her and count her towers, consider her ramparts, go through her palaces that you may tell it to the next generation for such is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us until death or literally there until death it indicates forever. He's just going to always be our God. What do you do? And this is not a buzz phrase for an Israel tour brochure. Walk about Zion and go around her and count her towers, you know, which we've done and you can do. But it is an inspection. Check out the city. Go ahead. Check it out. After mighty Assyria has drawn down. Count the towers. Consider the ramparts. How much damage was done? Not a scratch. Not a scratch. God protected His people, His city. And Hezekiah says, tell your kids. Talk to them about it. Pass on the story of deliverance to the next generation. And you can do that. I can do that. It's why our children's ministry is so absolutely critical. It's why our parenting and our grandparenting and our aunting and our uncling is so important. Because we can pass on deliverance to the next generation. We can talk about the stories. We can share with our kids what they need to hear. And they need to hear it because, gang, it is a different world. I found this thing online. It's called the Beloit College from Beloit, Wisconsin. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Beloit or Beloit, I don't know. Beloit, is that correct? Okay. It's the mindset list for the class of 2014. And they put out a list, and it's 75 things that that describes the the incoming freshman class. They do this every year. And they do it primarily for their professors, so the professors can read this and realize that these kids are different than we think they are. And so this is Annalise's class, class of 2014. Unless she decides to be, I don't know, a doctor or something, then you're going to be 2049, roughly. (laughs) 
So Annalise and, and Hannah, my daughter, Corey, my son, 2014. Listen to this, it's interesting. The collegiate class of 2014, mostly born in 1992, will be armed with iPhones and Blackberries on which making a phone call will be only one of the many, many functions they will perform. They will now be awash with a computerized technology that will not distinguish information and knowledge important. The Internet, for all its value, does not distinguish good from evil. What's right and what's wrong, what's true and what's false. It's just information. And it could be true, and it could be absolute lies. And so make sure you use Snopes, you know, .com. It will be, and this frightens me, so it will be up to their professors to help them to distinguish knowledge. Really? No, that's just great. (laughs) A generation accustomed to instant access will need to acquire the patience of scholarship. Their professors, who might be tempted to think they are hip enough and therefore ready and relevant to teach the new generation, might remember that Kurt Cobain is now on the classic oldies station. (laughs) Nirvana! plays in elevators now. The college class of 2014 reminds us, once again, that a generation comes and goes in the blink of our eyes, which are, like the rest of us, getting older and older. And for this class, and I just picked out a few of the 75, I'm just going to give you about four or five of these. For this class, number one, do you know how to write in cursive? They just haven't taken the time. Why? What do they need it for? Everything's typed out now. Email is too slow, and they seldom, if ever, use snail mail. It's Twitter, it's Facebook, it's the fastest way they can get information one from another to another. They don't use email, kids of 2014. Maybe a little bit, not much. And number three, phrases like caramel macchiato and venti half-cap vanilla lattes are street corner lingo. <laughs> For this class, number four, the digital world is routine and technology is too slow. How many of you are just struggling to keep up with technology? And our kids are racing out ahead of it. They're saying, it's not fast enough. We need faster. We need 4G. We need 10G. We need the fastest, you know, internet access we can get. Incredible. Uh, Number five, I like this. Fergie is a pop singer, not a princess. (laughs) And number six, last one I'll share, cross-burning to this group of kids has always been considered protected free speech. So it's a different generation, a generation that's coming up. It's a postmodern culture that is defined as being big on immediate experience and small on deliberate discernment. It doesn't matter if it's right or wrong, true, false, absolute, relative. I don't care as long as it feels good as long as my experience is good, and gang, it's seeping into the church in a a frightening way. I've talked about the emerging church, and the emerging church is just a picture of this quietly adulterating faith in the church. And even on at least Christian colleges, just because the college says Christian in the name, be careful. Just because the university pretends to be a Christian university, you know what? Watch out. Don't assume that the professors know everything they're talking about. This has been the lecture I've been giving Hannah over and over. Just because it's Christian, be discerning. Use the Word of God. Be solid in what you've been taught and what you know and what you believe. Don't go all after experience only. 
boy, Christian colleges are churning out students with a postmodern faith. And rather than being biblically literate, doctrinally discerning, they're looking for the next faith buzz. And that is so dangerous. It's more critical now that we repeat these great stories. It's more critical now that we talk about deliverance and what God does and how He functions and what His nature and character is as revealed to us in Scripture, the lamp, and as revealed to us in the oil of the Spirit. Not as to what's revealed by our senses. In the coming kingdom, however, now looking back, the millennial kingdom, deliverance from worldwide threat against Jerusalem will be a story taught to the generations. It will be repeated again and again. For such is God, verse 14, our God forever and ever. He will guide us until death. He will guide us until death. Literally, He will guide us over death. Or He will guide us through death. That is, on into eternity. God will be with us. Well, how many times did you in your life think you were done for and God intervened? It's probably good to look back at some of those times when you were freaking out. It's not going to work. It's not going to come together. I don't know how. And God intervened. And you're here tonight. And you're still living. And you're still breathing. And you probably ate something today. And you have the Word open. How many times has He intervened for you? Tell the story. Tell of your deliverance. Share that. Let people know. So, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth. Of course, right now it's not. It's not the joy of the whole earth. God said through Zechariah, He'd make Jerusalem a cup of trembling, a cup that causes reeling to all the cities of the world. And it is. Today, it is the epicenter of trembling. In the coming kingdom, it's going to be the capital of joy and worship for a thousand years. Now, if I were to entitle this this teaching across this, this arc of Psalm 46 through 50, I would entitle it, to the millennium and beyond. It's kind of a Buzz Lightyear thing. Because we actually now step beyond that millennial kingdom to the next event, the next thing that happens. Rapture of the church. Tribulation. Jesus' return. Millennial kingdom for a thousand years, but something else happens next. And Psalm 49 and 50 take us beyond the millennium with a warning. Psalm 49 is what we call an orphanic psalm, a psalm that doesn't have a, a, a human parent anyway, a human writer to it. We know the, the author is the Holy Spirit, but we don't know who wrote the psalm. We don't know the situation that it was written in, but it's great because Psalm 49 has an application that is across the board. That you don't want to tie down to a point in history. You want to say, look, this is for everyone of every season. And by the way, for those of you who have tried to live with some manner of financial integrity in your life and you've gotten you know, reamed for it, this psalm is for you. Listen up. Psalm 49, verse 1. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor, together. My mouth will speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart will be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will express my riddle on the harp. You could say he's about to harp on you a little bit. Verse 5. Why should I fear in days of adversity when the iniquity of my foes surrounds me? Even those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches. No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly and he should cease trying forever. 
that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. For he sees that even wise men die. The stupid and the senseless alike perish and leave their wealth to others. Verse 11, their inner thought is that their houses are forever and their dwelling places to all generations. I'm amassing my wealth and my kingdom and my many houses and my land holdings and my stocks and my bonds and they ultimately end up in stocks and bonds because of it. And they have called their lands after their own names. Thinking, you know, if I name this land after me, I will continue. You know, I'll leave my my grand and glorious legacy. By the way, Israel is not named after a man. Do you realize that? It's not named after a man. The people of Israel. Well, aren't the people of Israel people of Jacob? Yeah, Jacob's the man. Israel is the name that God gave to Jacob for the people. And the name itself... You know, it's not called the land of Jacob. It's called the land of Israel. Why? Because Israel means God prevails. It's the land of God's prevailing. And He will prevail over it as over all the earth. But in verse 12 it says, But man in his pomp will not endure. He's like the beasts that perish. This is the way of those who are foolish and of those who after them approve of their words. Okay, those who are foolish are those who trust their wealth, who trust their holdings, who try to amass a lot of money and think they find security in it. Well, they're going to die. It's a foolish pursuit. And you can't take it with you. What about those after them who approve of their words? Well, those are those people who are saying, yeah, build up your wealth, Dad. (laughs) I'll take care of it after you're gone. And of course they're approving the words of the wealthy because they want a piece. You know? As sheep, they are appointed for Sheol, and death shall be their shepherd. And the upright shall rule over them in the morning, and their form shall be for Sheol to consume, so that they have no habitation. But God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for He will receive me. So do not be afraid when a man becomes rich. When the glory of his house is increased, for when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not descend after him. (laughs) The indication is the wealthy man is going down. Though while he lives, he congratulates himself. And though men praise you when you do well for yourself, he shall go to the generation of his fathers. They will never see the light. Man in his pomp yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. I saw this in the news. A Democratic Congressional Campaign Fundraiser that happened just this last week was co-hosted by Barbara Streisand and Jeffrey Katzenberg. The deal was, if you hosted a table for this event, it would cost you big bucks, but you would get your commemorative picture taken with President Obama. Yes. So you got that going for you. The cost... For Barbara Streisand and Jeffrey Katzenberg to host this event was $30,400 apiece. And they were no-shows. Barb, Jeff, go to the event if you're going to pay 30000 bucks for it, dude. Who has that kind of money to throw around? Oh, I'll pay for that, sure, whatever. I mean, it's mind-boggling. 
The amount of money that goes into politics today, which is why, by the way, politics is not of the people, by the people, and for the people. It's of the politicians, by the politicians, and for the politicians. But I point that out just to say it's incredible what people spend things on and the amount of money that flows through people's hands while we're struggling in our economy. Money's just flying right and left. Money that could get this nation back on its feet. It's not just Democrats, by the way. The money is spent on both sides and it is incredible amounts constantly flowing. But from the richest to the poorest among us, you've got to ask this question, how much would you pay for redemption? How much is it worth? Eternity. Psalmist says back in verse 7, no man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him for the redemption of his soul is costly. And he should cease trying forever. You don't have enough money. No man has ever made enough to buy his redemption. No man of, of, of philanthropy will impress God. You know, it's not like God's going to say, Ooh, you spent a lot of money to improve people's lives or to push this agenda. Man, let him in. Did you see how much he spent on that? It's worthless. But as Peter writes, and we quote often, 1 Peter 1.18, You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers. You were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And that is priceless. And that is the only thing that can buy our redemption. His spotless blood. So if you're going to invest in everything, I would suggest you invest in the kingdom. Because that's where you get maximum return for your investment. Well, what is my investment? It's faith. Man, it's just faith in Jesus. Trust Him. Now read on. It's Psalm 50, going on from here was written by Asaph. We know this is Psalm of Asaph. It's there right in the title. And so we have the, the man who wrote it. And Asaph, he's going to write several of the Psalms. And he was in charge of, of worship music. In fact, back in First Chronicles 16, verse 7, it tells us on the day, and this is the day that the Ark of the Covenant was brought into Jerusalem the right way, set up there in David's tabernacle and, and ready for the worship to continue night and day. Well, the Ark was brought in and it says, on that day, David first assigned Asaph and his relatives to give thanks to the Lord. Further down in First Chronicles 16, verse 37, it says, So David left Asaph and his relatives there before the Ark of the, of the Covenant of the Lord to minister before the Ark continually. So this was his job. Asaph, among the Levites, was worship leader. And so this worship leader began to write. And he's the writer, but don't miss this, the Spirit is the author. And here we are in the Ark. We, we've gone into the Millennial Kingdom. We see the beauty of, of Jerusalem over all the earth in elevation. And now, we come to the end and we recognize that for all man's attempts, there is nothing that will redeem him save the blood of Jesus. Save God alone. We come into Psalm 50 and we have a very serious warning of something that takes place at the end of the Millennial Kingdom. Verse 1. The Mighty One... God the Lord. In fact, in Hebrew, that's El, Elohim, Yahweh. Three names for God here. El, Elohim, Yahweh, has spoken and summoned the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty God has shown forth. This millennial kingdom here. May our God come and not keep silence. Fire devours before Him. And it is very tempestuous around him 
He summons the heavens above and the earth to judge His people. Gather my godly ones to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice, and the heavens declare His righteousness, for God Himself is judge. Here comes the judge. We're now speaking of judgment day. Lots of different perspectives in world religions, and even in Christianity, about what judgment day is, when judgment day happens, what it's all about. So here's the deal on judgment day. God starts with His godly ones. He begins with people of faith. And who are they? Verse 5 says, It's those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. So we're talking about those who are the godly of Israel, but we're also talking about, gang, Christians. Our judgment before the Lord, we have made a covenant with Him by sacrifice, have we not? The covenant is by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And by accepting the cross, we enter into a covenantal relationship and we become the godly ones. Like the godly remnant of Israel who will come to faith in Jesus, so you, by having faith in Jesus, were called before our judge. Peter said, so now time is so that the judgment should begin with the household of God. And we are judged first. And that first judgment gang happened at the cross. Where we were judged righteous by our actions? No, by the blood of Christ. That's the first judgment. We will also come before the judgment seat of Christ where the Lord will render rewards. But our judgment, we're called up first. But after that, and after this millennial kingdom, here comes judgment day as people tend to think of it. And the Lord will address two groups of people. The first group is the religious legalist. Verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices, and your burnt offerings are continually before me. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. And by the way, it's a great verse to memorize if you're having financial trouble. Okay? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He can probably meet your needs. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. He says, Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and and pay your vows to the Most High. Then call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. So to the religious legalist, he says, Look, you're all about your sacrifices. But you need to understand, I don't need your animal sacrifices. I don't need your bulls and your goats and your rams. I don't need your tithes. You need to offer those things. God gave Israel the sacrifices because Israel needed to offer the sacrifices. Why? Because it would alter them. Because it would change them. God doesn't need the blood of a bull. He owns all of them. And I love that comedy. He says, if I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world's mine and all it contains. No, God doesn't get hungry, but if he got hungry, he could go to In-N-Out. He owns it. You know? He could trek through Taco Bell. He owns all of them. They're his. You know, if he wants a burger, he'll get it. He doesn't need us to give him these things. Church, he doesn't need your commitment. God doesn't need your time. 
He doesn't need your attendance. He doesn't need your ministry. He doesn't need your tithes and offerings. God doesn't need them. You need and I need to give them. Which is why the Lord puts it out there. Bring your tithes and offerings into the storehouse. Why, Lord? Because it will increase your faith. Because every time you drop it in the box, you're trusting me to deliver you from whatever financial struggle you might be in. Every time you drop it in the box, you are saying, Lord, I trust you for my life and not my hard work. I need to give. God doesn't need me to give. I need to do ministry. Trust me, I need to be in ministry. Why? Because it changes me. I need to care about my brothers and sisters in Christ. Not because God told me to, as much as because it, it makes me more like Jesus. All these things, these commitments, these rules and challenges that the Lord puts out there, His law, these covenants, we don't keep them to be saved, we keep them because they change us. They make us more like Him. The offerings alter me. In the same way that the offerings altered or were supposed to alter Israel. And that's where religious legalism gets so far off because we think that the offerings and the doing of the thing pleases God. Uh Uh-uh. It changes me. And as I am changed, well, yeah, that pleases God. As I become more Christ-like, that thrills Him. As my faith grows, you know, Jesus was thrilled when He saw the faith of the centurion. He said, wow, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. When the Syrophoenician woman came up to him and said, hey, the the, the dogs lick the crumbs that fall off the table. And Jesus says, wow. It's faith. He loves faith. And all these things that we do in what the world calls religion, our behavior, our actions, grow us and strengthen us and sanctify us. And that, that pleases him. Notice, by the way, he says, here's what I want from you. I, I, I want you to offer sacrifice of thanksgiving. I just want you to be thankful. I want you to pay your vows. In other words, stick to your commitment. He says, I want you to call upon me. And all these things that God wants, they all speak of our relationship with Him. They all speak of, of how we are. Because it's not our religion that impresses the Lord. It's the relationship we have. That's what He's looking for. And that's what thrills him. So the religious legalist, God says, that's not going to work for you. These things do, so they will change you, making you more like me. And then he goes after, now, the irreligious hypocrite. Verse 16. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? You know, those who say, yeah, I was talking to God the other day, people who have no faith whatsoever... Oh, I really hope God can help me out of this mess. Do you believe in Him? Do you believe in Jesus? God would say to people like that, What right do you have even to speak my covenant? For you hate discipline. And you cast my words behind you. And when you see a thief, you're pleased with him. And you associate with adulterers. And you let your mouth loose in evil. And your tongue frames deceit. And you sit and you speak against your brother and you slander your own mother's son. Interesting. He goes after all these. These things that that we do and some of these things we do are so, so typical. You hate discipline. You know, you don't don't want to stick to the project there. 
You know, you cast my words behind you. God says, here's the way I want you to do things. We go, well, that's nice, Lord, but I'd really rather do it this way. Well, here's, here's the way I have it for you. I, I'm watching our world. Hannah and I, the other night, were talking about this. Just watching our world, watching the church begin to embrace homosexuality in the name of tolerance. Because we just need to embrace that. It's got to be, it needs to be okay. Listen, we need to be compassionate, absolutely, and loving, and presenting the gospel of grace, and not being hateful and spiteful and all that toward the homosexual, but accepting it is okay? No, it's not. Not according to the Lord. But are we going to, like so many, cast His words behind us? Or are we going to walk in His words? When you see a thief, you're pleased with him? You know, how many TV shows now, the bad guy is the good guy. He's the one we're rooting for. (laughs) You associate with adulterers? I see more and more kids, I I may have even said this earlier if I'm repeating myself, forgive me, but I see more and more kids who are saying, hey, we want to get married, but we've been living together for six months. Really? And going to church? Yeah, we go to a great church down in Seattle. Huh? I, I I don't get that. You let your mouth loose in evil. That's a tough one. The language we use, the jokes we tell, the slander, the gossip, the stuff that comes out of our mouth that, that we're okay with because at least it's not you know, doing this thing over here. All these things, you speak against your brother. God says that's an irreligious hypocrite. He rebukes both the religious legalist, the irreligious hypocrite, and Jesus wisely advises us that the right way to approach God is to worship Him in spirit and in truth. In spirit, religious legalist, in the spirit of the Lord. And in truth, irreligious hypocrite. You see, both are wrong. Jesus says, come to me in spirit and in truth. Well, Rick, how does this all lead beyond the millennium? Psalm 49 is a warning against trusting your wealth now. Psalm 50 is a declaration of coming judgment, which happens on the prophetic calendar at the conclusion of the thousand-year reign of Christ, at the conclusion of the millennial kingdom. Now, just we're almost done, so listen closely. Get this down. Every person who dies in faith in Christ Jesus, or who is alive in faith in Christ Jesus, at the moment of the rapture, will be caught up. And understand that once you're caught up, once that rapture happens, you are in your glorified body and you will be from that point forward. You don't suddenly become flesh again at the millennium. You are glorified. You are one of God's people. You are with Jesus wherever He goes from that point forward. So to me, a believer in Jesus Christ, the rapture is the beginning of eternity. Though we come back and we're with Him, in His righteous government for a thousand years, man, I'm still... Eternity's begun for me at that point. Secondly, everyone who dies, who is martyred in the tribulation for their belief in Jesus, and there will be massive numbers who the Bible tells us will be, they will also be saved. At the, at the end of the tribulation, they will be saved. They'll miss the honeymoon that we get with Jesus. And they will be in a different position, but they will be saved, and wonderfully, they will be invited to the feast. They will not be the bride, but they'll be at the feast. Everyone 
including believing Israel who survives the tribulation, who goes through that seven year period and is alive just in their flesh, at the end of that seven year period, all of those people will enter into the millennial kingdom. They will be the subjects of the millennial kingdom. Now, the thing you need to understand is it may only be the remnant of Israel that survives that tribulation. I know in the Left Behind series, if you've read that, there's some postulation that maybe a few other people survive as well. It's very dicey. What it looks like is if you don't come to faith in Christ before the tribulation to be caught up with the church, if you come to faith in Christ during the tribulation, that you will pay a high price. You'll lose your head for it. And you will be severely tormented for it. You will die a martyr. Um, But there is still salvation because God's grace is huge. So that's the deal for believers. That's what happens to everyone who believes prior to the very beginning of the Millennial Kingdom. What about unbelievers? What about those who die having rejected Christ? Now, I'm going to be very black and white about this, but you need to understand, and let me say this with compassion, if you've had a loved one pass away who you're not sure where they were at with the Lord, you leave that to the grace of the Lord. You have to. You don't try to play the judge and figure out whether or not they made it. You know what? Give them to the Lord. Let Him deal with the mercy and the grace and deal with them His way. We're just talking about the black and whites, okay? So all those who believe, we've talked about, the unbelievers from all of history, from day one all the way to the end, everyone who died trusting in themselves or their money or anything other than Jesus Christ for redemption will be on hold, kept in Sheol through that entire thousand year period. They just wait. Until, watch this. Keep your finger there. Revelation chapter 20. Which tells us in verse 7, to the very end of your Bible so you can get there pretty fast. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison, which he's been for a thousand years. And he will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. And the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. What is this talking about? After a thousand years of perfect peace and prosperity and joy, Under the righteous rule of Jesus, there will be a massive rebellion. It's almost incomprehensible. Satan is loosed and suddenly there's a massive number of people, mankind, who flood after him and rebel against Jesus even after experiencing life under his rule. Incredible. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city that would be Jerusalem and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And it's over. The last battle. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever. And so that happens at the end of the millennial kingdom. This massive uprising immediately put down. The devil's thrown into the lake of fire. But everyone who is part of that rebellion, guess what happens? Well, they're just killed right then and there. And then... And then... After that rebellion, God summons all the dead to final judgment. Verse 11 says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. Listen, the dead here do not include you. 
do not include people of faith, believers. This is all those who died outside of faith in Jesus. And books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, watch this, according to their deeds. Not according to their name being in the book of life, but according to what they've done, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Here's the deal, back in Psalm 50. Verse 21. These things you have done, speaking about all these this wickedness. These things you have done and I kept silence. You thought that I was just like you. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. The Lord says, listen, don't confuse my silence in this age with apathy. Don't think that just because I'm silent I've given up caring about what you do on this earth. Don't think that my silence is approval of what you are doing either. Just because someone chooses a lifestyle or behavior and the lightning doesn't strike doesn't mean God is saying, oh, that's cool, go ahead. Don't get confused. He says, I am not like you. You thought I was, but remember what he says in Isaiah, my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways. He says, I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. He is talking about final judgment, where God will give every non-believer their day in court. Every person will stand before the Lord. The books are open. He'll say, okay, you want to be judged by your own behavior? Let's do that. And the Lord will state His case. And the unbeliever will be able to state his case. And the outcome will not be good. But God is absolutely just and fair. And He makes it possible for all non-believers to have that opportunity to state their case. It's very serious business. Final judgment. Verse 22. Now consider this, you who forget God. (laughs) Or I will tear you in pieces and there will be none to deliver. Wow. Aren't you glad Jesus never talked like that? Actually, He did. Matthew 24 in the parable of the wicked slave. The wicked slave who his master is a long time coming and he's you know, longer than Rick teaches and he figures he's not coming. And so Jesus says and that slave starts to beat other slaves, mistreat them, starts to hang out with drunkards. That's exactly what Jesus says. In Matthew 24.51 says, Jesus speaking, the master will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There will be none to deliver. Verse 23. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. And to him who orders his way aright, I shall show the salvation of God. Again and again and again. What we see the Lord doing in Scripture is leading our attention to heaven. To the last days. God wants us to be an informed people. He wants us to know where we're going, what's going to happen, the final things, the rapture, the tribulation, the millennial kingdom, the judgment, and even beyond that into eternity. 
Revelation 21 and 22 are fantastic. The new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. And it will be wonderful and glorious. And He wants us to know all these things that we might aim for heaven. Because as Lewis said, if you aim for heaven, you get earth thrown in. But if you aim for earth, you will get neither. Aim for heaven. Because it's just not about this life. Father, make us those who aim for heaven, who think about heaven, who hope for Jesus' return, and as John writes, and are purified by that hope. Who live our lives heavenly-minded and thinking about these things. Not ignoring even the the distressing things, the, the fearful things yet to come. Not afraid to know these things and talk about them. And Father, may all of this simply motivate us to share Jesus all the more while there is still time. While it's still called today. May we aim for heaven and see others saved in the process. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.